the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about America's changing relationship with China, the still emerging superpower that is challenging us in industry, technology, and economic influence. Should we be fearful or even resentful toward China? Or is there a more constructive way to think through how we interact with our communist rival? And what does this all mean for Michigan and our economy? It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I've heard and read a fair amount recently of commentary about the U.S. standoff with Russia over its invasion of Ukraine, and it goes something like this The real tension that's playing out, the real struggle of ideals here, is actually between the United States and China, which a lot of people say is lurking just behind the ambitions and aggressions of Russian oligarch Vladimir Putin. Now, whether you believe that or not, there's no question that this commentary falls under a pretty common theme these days. And that theme has China playing a much bigger role in our imaginations and in our American sense of our place in the world. A lot of that, frankly, is attributable to former President Donald Trump, who did a lot to stoke the negative feelings that many people already kind of had about our communist rivals. But his concentration on that really did change our politics and it's having effects on both the Democratic and the Republican sides. We have to be able to keep up with China. Think about how often you hear people say things like that. And we hear it from Democrats, we hear it from Republicans, we hear it from independents. And it also appears to be the Biden administration's stance as well. China has become our, quote, most serious competitor according to President Joe Biden. And if you think of it that way, that China is a competitor rather than a potential partner, there's a little bit of danger that lurks behind that idea. Because while China does some things that we don't like, including accumulating a stronger military presence, taking land in the South China Sea, and violating international human rights, it's also a really powerful and large influence on the planet. And it's important that we be able to work with China. It has one of the world's fastest growing economies. It's an enormous investor, both domestically and abroad. And it's a critical player to ensure global security. And uh, this is really super important to prevent the climate change. 
that we're all living with. But our negative sentiments toward China make working with them really difficult. And this leaves questions about how we should be approaching the entire question of China. What kinds of incentives should we be using to work with them? Maybe what kind of sanctions should we be thinking of? And what kind of stance should our lawmakers be taking when they're talking about China? Should they be talking about it in the same terms that lawmakers used to talk about the Soviet Union back in the 70s and 80s? Or should they be talking about the ways we build bridges to the Chinese people and their government and their businesses? Should they be talking about the things that we could build if we could work with China? That's where we begin the conversation today. What do we make of China? What do we make of the United States and its relationship to China? And beyond that, what do we make of the relationship or the potential relationship between a state like Michigan and China. We've got really great guests today to help us think through all of this. Tom Watkins is an advisor to the Michigan China Innovation Center and a former operative in many aspects of Michigan's state government. He is someone who worked really hard during several administrations to encourage bridge building, economic bridge building, between the state of Michigan and China. Tom Watkins, welcome to Detroit Today. It's great to be here with you. Thank you, Stephen. And also with us is Jim Millward. He is a professor of intersocial history at Georgetown University's Foreign School of Service. Jim, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Pleased to be here. So, Tom, I want to start here. Talk about how you've seen Michigan and American politicians change the way they talk about and think about China uh, over time. I was saying in the open that uh, I think President Trump, former President Trump, had a pretty profound influence on the way that we think about China. And we hear our representatives, I think, uh, describing that relationship uh, very different. But, but talk about how different it is and why it's different. Well, I'm from the days of Nixon when I was a child growing up in Washington, D.C. Uh, our relationship with China mirrored our, our relationship with uh, North Korea today. Uh, out of sight, out of mind, a lot of fear. Uh, Nixon going to China, ping-pong diplomacy. Fast forward, you have seven, eight administrations that collaborated, worked with, uh, and uh, had mutual benefits uh, as China has risen. Uh, that began to change in 2012, certainly with the ascension of President Xi uh, and his more authoritarian rule, which has really upset uh, the liberal global order. And as you pointed out in your opening season, it's challenging the West on, on mul multiple fronts, certainly economically, militarily, technologically, uh, and is chipping away at the U.S. Uh, desire uh, to maintain that top of the heap, uh, the top of the hill, our wealth and power. Uh, what we need to do is uh, be working uh, with China uh, on what I call the six C's, uh, communication, uh, cooperation, coordination, collaboration, and yeah, competition, as we work uh, like our lives depend on it to avoid the kind of conflict 
that uh, would be devastating to the people of China, the people of the U.S., and for that matter, all of humanity. Mm-hmm. Michigan, um, I think, had ebbed and flow. You had uh, what I would call Governor Granholm, uh, who played Peking Duck uh, with China, really never engaged, never involved, and the like. That was followed uh, by uh, Governor Snyder, who I thought had a sensible uh, policy. He could uh, decide to take on the issues uh, on the national and international scene, uh, on human rights uh, violations and, uh, and the like, but decided that what he would do was to try to work with China to increase uh, investment here in the state of Michigan and to export our goods and services, uh, including education, uh, to the People's Republic of China, which I thought was a more nuanced uh, response and one that benefited benefited our state uh, with economic investment uh, mm-hmm. here and selling our goods overseas. Yeah. And I'm going to want to come back to more discussion of that relationship between Michigan and China and how that played out over the last decade and how it's playing out now. But, but before we do that, uh, Jim, I want to bring you into the conversation here and just put to you that, that, um, that tale that I told at the top of, of the show about seeing commentary and hearing people say that when we're talking about these tensions with Russia over its invasion of Ukraine, that, that really what's playing out in the background and really what's going on is a version of this rivalry with China and that uh, Russia in some ways is something of a proxy for Chinese ambition and and aggression. It, 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 does that make sense? Is that really what's going on? And is that a useful way, I guess, for uh, Americans to think about uh, our relationship with, with either of those countries? Well, I, I, I certainly wouldn't say that Russia is, is China's cat's paw or that, in fact, that Russia is doing anything that China uh, would want Russia to do. This has actually been extremely inconvenient for uh, for China, and there's a lot of commentary or, or you know, questioning uh, to what degree Xi Jinping or other leaders in the Chinese Communist Party you know, knew this was going to happen. Um, it was very early. It wasn't long before the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, that of course, famously Putin and Xi met in Beijing around the Olympics and, and promised you know limitless cooperation. So I. So I don't think they um, agree with what's going on, but they are kind of, China is sort of stuck um, because of its rhetoric and and actually because of its anti-U.S. rhetoric that Mm -hmm. it's really doubled down on um, to at least appear to be uh, supporting Russia. But but economically and militarily, it it doesn't really seem to to be doing that. It's certainly being very careful not to violate uh, the, the the sanctions and the you know, restrictions on the Russian economy that um, would lead to those sanctions being extended extended to China. So they're they're walking a tightrope there. But on the broader question of that, that you raised, you know, should we be thinking about China uh, as our as the biggest ideological rival? Right? You know, is is the Russia invasion of Ukraine kind of a sideshow where the real story is this growing rivalry, this new growing Cold War style competition mm-hmm. with with China. And I would say that that's a mistake as well. Um, 
you know, not that we shouldn't be concerned and not that those C's, which Tom just mentioned, are all important. Um, but to see this as a global ideological contest of ideas, um, you know, I think really misses the point. Um, you know, communism is not really what is going on here, although people like to criticize China and always throw that communist in, say the Communist Party, Communist China, and so on, you know, hearkening back to Cold War kind of rhetoric. Um, but it's not about that. China doesn't have a communist system. They have a state capitalist system, but they're not trying to export that particularly. They are authoritarian politically, uh, and they tend to pal around with other authoritarian uh, states. Um, but that's more of a uh, a modus operandi than it is a way of thinking, right? And um, so I don't think it's it's not a, it's not an ideological rivalry. It is one of power, um, and I think it's also to a great degree actually that we might not fully have fathomed um, the, the 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 current. Uh, dire state of U.S.-China relations is also a problem of, of personalities and this kind of perfect storm of Trump and Xi both being in power at the same time and both screwing things up in the relationship, uh, each in their own way. We're talking about China. Uh, we're talking about the relationship between the United States and China. Uh, and we're talking with Tom Watkins, who is an advisor at the Michigan-China Innovation Center which serves as Michigan's liaison to Chinese and Taiwanese businesses and governments. Uh, also with us is uh, James Millward. He's a professor of intersocietal history at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He teaches Chinese, Central Asian, and world history. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, give us a call and tell us what you think of when you think of China. Um, are you afraid of the economic or the technological rise of China? Uh, do you think they present a threat to us as the United States? Uh, and what kind of foreign policy stance do you think we should have against uh, another country that has one of the world's fastest growing economies and certainly has uh, a powerful military and some other uh, real advantages that uh, that we might benefit from. Uh, how should we be working with the Chinese to make sure uh, that things like climate change uh, are taken in hand globally? How should we be working with them on economic issues? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to... Uh, the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work into the conversation. Also, give us a call if you're somebody here in Michigan who either has ties to China, uh, cultural ties perhaps to China, or business ties to China. Um, we have, have developed a, a fair amount of connection uh, between this state and that country. Uh, tell us uh, if you're if you're part of that and uh, and how that all works, given the the rhetoric that we hear from so many elected representatives that uh, that bad mouse the idea of Chinese U.S. relations. As always, the number here on the phones is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. And again, you can go to social media, put comments there. And we can include you in the conversation that way. At, at Tom, before we get to listeners, uh, I, I want to go back to you and talk about how things have changed 
from a hyper domestic uh, lens here in the state of Michigan and, and Southeast Michigan, and also uh, the UP. I remember distinctly uh, some trips to China um, uh, by 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 the Snyder administration to build better ties between some UP businesses uh, and the Chinese. It looks a little different now is my sense, but but give me your sense of, of how that's all going. Yeah, clearly it has changed. And some of that uh, happened with the new governors coming in and I think all the global pandemic uh, taking place. As you pointed out, the, the rhetoric, uh, the heat uh, between uh, China and, and the U.S. has certainly been turned up by President Trump. And, and perhaps this would become a little bit of a surprise to you uh, uh, that, you know, I, I commend uh, President Trump, even though I don't like how he goes about things. But what he did, I think, to raise the issue, the specter of our competition, uh, our collaboration, our coordination with China uh, needed to change. Uh, and I think that it uh, needs to change. And in both style and substance, and it went on. The interesting thing is, is today, the policies that have come out of the Biden administration haven't changed uh, very much at all um, with it. One of the things that they have done is to rather than going along alone in American first position, they've taken more of a collaborative building uh, strength with our allies, uh, certainly with the Quad, Japan, uh, Australia, in India, and the United States, uh, to uh, provide a counterbalance in the East and the South China Sea. But the point that I would think we need to look at, whether it's domestically or nationally and internationally, is China's rise is, is inevitable. I mean, if you take a look back, I think they were the largest world economy, 17 out of the last 21 uh, centuries, and, and they're going to continue to move and rise in that direction. What we need to do is assure that China's rise doesn't come at America and Western uh, philosophy and beliefs demise. And one of the things that I think we lose in this uh, competition with China, and as, as Jim pointed out, the professor pointed out, you know, this whole thing about the boogeyman of communism is what we should be doing to counter China's rise is investing in the American people. Mm. Um, when we invest in the American people in our infrastructure, our education, our technology, our research, uh, research and development, um, we can out-compete, out-work anybody in the world, but we've been disinvesting in America at the same time that China has been investing in its people and its nation. And until we change that, we're not going to be uh, – we're going to be on that inevitable seesaw where one nation has to be up for the other nation um, to be down, and we have to find a way to change that balance. Coming up, we're going to continue this conversation about the United States and China, the relationships between the two countries, the relationships between the state of Michigan uh, and the Chinese. Uh, we'll get going on the phones as well. Sam and Mount Clements will be up first. If you want to join him, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what you make of U.S.-China relations, what you make of the relationships that exist here in Southeast Michigan or in the state of Michigan uh, between businesses uh, and businesses in China. Uh, how should we be thinking of them as rivals, as competitors, or more as partners? 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to social media, put comments there. We'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back 
with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and our subject today is China, the relationships that exist between the United States and China, the relationships that exist between Southeast Michigan and the state of Michigan and China. Uh, We've got Tom Watkins with us. He is an advisor at Michigan China Innovation Center, former deputy chief of staff for former Michigan governor, Jim Blanchard. Uh, Also with us is uh, James Millward. He's professor of intersocietal history at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Uh, We want to hear from you as well about your impressions of the relationship between the United States and China, the experiences perhaps that you have uh, working with uh, Chinese businesses, uh, maybe working with the Chinese government uh, from here in Southeast Michigan. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can go to social media as well, put comments there, and we can include you in our conversation. Let's start with Sam in Mount Clemens. Sam, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen, how are you? Good. Um, I have, we really have to work with China and other countries. I believe um, we have global issues, say global warming, that's going nowhere. We can't afford another generation of doing nothing. And it's eerily similar to what's going on in our country with the right and left. I think they fight about things and nothing gets done. Mm. I mean, just think about that. It it, it gets stalled. And we don't have time to play, you know? Yeah. Um, Uh, Sam, I'm really glad you called. I think that's a really great point, and it's a really interesting analogy um, Jim Millward, I wonder what you make of that that analogy and and that that idea that we have to be able to work with the Chinese to solve some of some of the global issues that we face. Certainly, and and some of the global issues, but environment is number one through ten, I think, on that list. And unfortunately, it tends to sort of you know, slip down the rankings. Um, one of the things I've been concerned about for you know a long time is that. As the issue of competition with China you know, comes more to the fore, we spend a lot of time talking about it. We cold war eyes this discussion, and meanwhile, can't do anything about you know, environmental uh, issues, or we compete over them. Right? Well, you know, China's not doing enough, therefore America's not going to do enough, or vice versa. And it's very easy to get into those kinds of arguments. But in fact, if you look both economically and commercially and scientifically. Uh, the collaboration that is really already going on in many ways between U.S. and China that uh, can really make a huge dent uh, or potentially can make a huge dent in the environmental problem. Just thinking about what's happened with the solar industry, right? Um, now, we can see this competitively and we can say that, well, nowadays, you know, China is really leading in the production of a lot of solar components, solar panels, 
there's a big problem in that polysilicon, which goes into that, is mined and produced in the Xinjiang region, right? Which, of course, where China has been interning a couple million Uyghurs and doing other atrocities there. Um, but the fact is that China jumping on this and beginning to manufacture these things is what's brought the price of solar energy and, and home installation solar energy down to the point where it's become, in many places, cheaper than, than gas, certainly than coal, mm -hmm. um, even on an individual level, right? And, and so um, thinking about this as, oh, you know, we can't buy their solar panels, we have to have our own. We, both, we need to be producing more, but at the same time, we have to see how the synergies between our economies and between our uh, technological forces uh, can actually make decarbonization affordable uh, for the world. So that's just one example of many ways in which this collaboration is, is critical. So uh, one of the things Steve, that I, I can, if, yeah, go ahead, Tom. I can weigh in on that. Sure. You know, the, your caller, I think, is right on, is that imagine if we were working, if President Xi and Biden got together and said, let's uh, form a pack on globalization uh, uh, around uh, global warming, climate change, pandemic, world hunger, uh, and, and the like, they'd be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize if we could get together and address that. Hmm. China, as uh, Jim, your professor has pointed out, uh, doesn't get credits for some of the things that they have done. They've risen, the Communist Party, over 800 million people out of abject poverty to the equivalent of, of the middle class. So finding ways to build bridges rather than just constantly uh, finding ways to dig moats between our two countries is certainly going to serve, uh, serve us all well. So I, I want to drill down a little on the environmental question. I mean, China is a huge polluter. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, I know from people who've lived, in fact, in, in China about how dirty the air is and the health problems that people face if they spend extended periods of, of time there. And certainly the portrayal here. Uh, Jim Millward is that mm -hmm. that they don't care much about the climate uh, changing, that they don't care much about uh, the, the the carbon that they put into the atmosphere, and that that's one of the stumbling blocks to 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 working with them on the idea of trying to reverse climate change is that they're driving it. Is that is that well? Uh, there's there's certainly things you can complain about. One is you know, they're they're burning tons of coal, as you say, and they are um, the world's largest polluter in that sense. Um, they were until recently, and may still be, also exporting the technology to build uh, coal-fired uh, energy plants, electricity plants in other countries as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, that's obviously a problem. Um, but again, if you know, you can turn it around, right? Um, we used to talk about supply side economics and, and demand side economics. Um, China is burning a lot of coal in order to make things that we buy a lot of, right? And so um, our economies are interlinked and consumption is driving that as much as China's production, um, which is not to excuse it, but again, it's something we have to work on on both sides. Tom, you've also written about the problems, or maybe the disconnect, perhaps, that we have with China over intellectual property rights. And there are certainly lots of businesses in this country that that fear China for that reason. I, I think in 
in similar terms to the way people describe the tensions over over climate change. They think of a different set of values, perhaps. Uh, you know, state ownership obviously is is something that that is much more accepted and prevalent in in China, and the idea of individual property rights of all kinds is is different between the two nations. But is that is that another way that we're misunderstanding China, or is this a real example of tension? Uh, the things that we just don't see eye to eye on. Now, clearly, there are, there are real issues, uh, whether it's, uh, quote, theft of intellectual property or environmental issues that you were talking about. But on those issues, I mean, one of the things that I've said for decades now is stop the whining, stop the complaining, stop the blaming on China. Find a way, as my old football coach would, would whack me upside the head and say, quit complaining, get in there and find a way to win. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, really what we need to be doing uh, today. As you were talking a minute ago about, uh, you know, the, the, the Chinese people and pollution, and clearly it has. I first uh, traveled to China in 1989. I uh, was with the students uh, during the week's buildup of Tiananmen Square and have traveled, you know, throughout the years up until um, the pandemic and, and have lived. There is a concern uh, about environmental issues in, in China. And uh, the Chinese are uh, beginning to, uh, to address that, not anywhere uh, quick enough. And it's for their own self-interest, uh, the old mandate from heaven, meaning that uh, the people can allow the government to rule as long as the people's lives have improved. And there's been clearly a trade-off over the decades as China has risen, that uh, kind of an unwritten rule that uh, the Chinese party uh, continues to rule and control as long as the lives of the Chinese people continue to rise. Um, it's going to be tested in the next couple of years because it appears that this may be the first year in probably four decades where the U.S. economy may grow at a faster clip than the Chinese economy. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of tension about uh, young graduates not able to find jobs uh, in the economy because of the lockdown and some of the internal policies that Xi Jinping and the Communist Party have been making in the most recent years. Yeah. Again, the number I, here. I wonder if yeah, I go can, ahead, Jim. Yeah, yeah. jump in. So I, you asked about sort of, you know, whether Chinese have a different set of values. And certainly their economy has a much stronger position. Uh, you know, the state plays a much stronger role in the Chinese economy. But um, what I think listeners should uh, remember is that, that switch is actually quite recent, right? I mean, since she's come to power, he's really clamped down and increased state control. Uh, this is something that really has only really been going on since the twenty third since twenty thirteen or so, and it's 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 a major change in China, which Chinese talk about too. And you know, before that, perhaps almost to a to a fault, it was almost kind of you know, untrammeled untrammeled capitalism of various kinds were running. Was, the state always could could clamp down, but you know, uh, labor problems, uh, environmental problems. You know, the reason some of those have gotten so out of hand was because you know, the, the restraints were off and people were just you know, working like crazy to make as much money as they could and so on. So the, the, those values of you know, working hard and making money, I think, would be very familiar to any Americans. And they might. Mm-hmm. But as, as Tom was saying, think, hmm, um, I need to run faster in order to keep up with that. You know, not try and criticize them for for doing it, and that's the underlying reality. And what we're seeing now is Xi Jinping reimposing a state system on top of on top of that very competitive nature of Chinese people. Competitive, but 
you know, in, in, in ways that Americans would recognize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone's call. And tell us what you make of U.S.-China relations, what you make of the ties between businesses and uh, other entities here in southeast Michigan or throughout the state of Michigan and uh, China. Let's go next to Calvin in Detroit. Calvin, what's on your mind? Hey, well, thanks for taking my call. You know, I've been doing a lot of research here. I, I love to look at the world, uh, our whole geopolitical situation, so on and so forth. But what stands out to me, a lot of the world's leading economists believe that uh, in the very near future, the Chinese yen will replace the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. As you know, the reserve currency is the only currency that you can buy OPEC oil in and so forth. Mm -hmm. My question is, if that indeed comes to pass, how will the yen replace the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency impact the U.S. economy as well as the world's? Hmm. Uh, great question, Calvin. Uh, Jim Millward, I'll give you the first crack at that. Sure. So yeah. there was discussion about that issue. Calvin's absolutely right. Um, certainly right now, though, uh, it's very, very difficult for people to get Yuan out of China. And again, for the reasons I just talked about, Xi Jinping has really cracked down. And the main concerns of Chinese is, um, you know, is moving their money, is fluidity of capital in Yuan. So I think that's that's put the brakes on uh this process of making the, the yuan a, a global currency. But I don't know, maybe uh, Tom has more economically savvy ideas about that. Yeah, I think, Go ahead, that, yeah, yeah, I think that, uh, again, it goes back to uh, stop worrying about so much with China and begin worrying about what we are doing here in this nation to invest in ourselves. That's really where we're going to build. You know, as we're speaking, uh, the Biden's Build Back Better plan has not been passed. We passed an infrastructure plan, um, and that pumps some money into this, uh, to, to this economy. But when are we going to begin to invest in the American people? Let's keep an eye on what we can control, because thinking somehow or another that we're going to corral or hold China back at this point is like building a chain-link fence as a tsunami is coming to our shores. So what the best strategy, in my estimation, that we should be to deal with Calvin's uh, issue and concern, which are real, is an invest in the American people, invest in America. And when we do that, uh, I think we'll be in a better position to compete, collaborate, cooperate uh, with China going forward on, on every level, both uh, militarily, economically, diplomatically. Uh, that's really where our focus should be. And we can't have our national politicians uh, kind of gearing up uh, the military-industrial complex uh, to just invest in things that will re reignite uh, a 21st century Cold War. Yeah. So, so Tom, I know you spend a lot of time in in China, and I want to have you talk specifically about some of the infrastructure differences. I have not been to China to experience these things, but uh, I had a friend several years ago who attended a wedding in a pretty remote part of China, um, but he was able to fly into Beijing and take a high-speed train uh, across the country 
to what, uh, you know, uh, essentially would be the equivalent of someplace like maybe Omaha in, in, mm-hmm. in our country. I mean, uh, not a place that you would think of as being terribly accessible by something like high-speed rail. But, but the, the, the way in which China has lapped us, I guess, in, in that kind of investment in, as you point out, in, in, in people, I mean, in infrastructure is an investment in people, I believe, uh, is really astonishing. And I'm not sure most Americans quite understand what that, how that plays out in, in your average Chinese life. Well, the point is, is the average Chinese life has uh, improved uh, remarkably over the last uh, 40 or 50 years. Um, you know, it, it kind of reminds me is, uh, you know, kind of watching The Wizard of Oz where it starts off in and, and black, black and white and then all of a sudden bursts into technicolor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's said that the national bird of China is the building crane. Uh, there's times that I've been <laughs> in, in cities that nobody has ever heard of. And you look around and literally, as you swivel your head, we'll see 30 or 40 huge building cranes going up um, that they're putting putting out. Uh, in 89, I rode the the old iron rooster, I mean, looking like something out of the West, Old West, uh, where people were ringing chickens and pigs and spitting on the floor. And as you pointed out, uh, Stephen, today China has uh, the world's largest network of high-speed rail. Um, where imagine, I mean, the train, if, if we had one here in Detroit, between Detroit and Chicago, uh, you could get on uh, a plane after a train after this conversation, have lunch in Chicago, uh, hold a meeting, and still be back to watch the 6 o'clock news. Hmm. In 1989, when I stood on the Bun, uh, you know, which is the riverfront in Shanghai, looking across the river to what's referred to as Pudong, uh, there was nothing there. This is rice fields and, and a few small buildings. Today, it's one of the most uh, advanced cities in the world. Shenzhen, on the border of Hong Kong, uh, was a small sleeping fishing village in the 70s. Today, uh, one of the most modern cities uh, on this planet. Um, yeah, I wish people could see the difference between investing in infrastructure in their own people and the disinvestment, what it's brought here to America, it would really uh, be shocking and, and open a lot of people's eyes. Hmm. Coming Can up, I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go so, ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, James. So, yeah, the um, China scholars and others have been there, love to talk about, about trains, and really the glittering high-speed rail is such a uh, clear indication of everything Tom was saying. Harder to see, but just as impressive has been Something else Tom referred to before, and that's China's investment in education hmm. Hmm. and uh, you know, higher education and, and research and scientific research over the last 20 years. Um, and they've gone again from you know, the equivalent of, of steam rail colleges to the equivalent of high speed electric rail universities that are now, you know, their scholars are publishing papers in international journals. And uh, U.S. has been a beneficiary of this in many ways. Because you know, students coming out of that system are are coming to the U.S. They're uh, you know doing PhDs. A lot of them stay. Maybe not as many as used to back in the day, but a lot of them still stay. But even if they go back, those connections are there. And I just want to give one example. We think about you know, the coronavirus and COVID as an example of big failures, both in China and the U.S. and 
And there's a lot of resentment over this. But one thing that's kind of got lost in that is that uh, early on, when we were just beginning to figure out what this disease was, um, the, the genome of this virus was sequenced in Wuhan. This was in December of 2020, so before we even knew what to call it. Um, and they released that information and made it available. It was properly done. And that's why we were able to produce the vaccine so quickly hmm. is because we had that. And the reason they were doing that is because they had invested in labs and invested in education personnel. And those connections between the Wuhan Virological Institute and I believe it was in North Carolina, which a lot of people are suspicious about. But we had a global network of scientific information that was working on that. And so uh, we need to be educated, to be investing in the United States and our universities in the same way. And we also need to keep the doors open for academic exchange and for students. And this is one of the things that was chaotic, I think, about the Trump response to China. They you know, were flirting with the idea of, of canceling all student visas and things like that. And that would have been a huge disaster and very much not in the U.S. national interest. Yeah. And if I can emphasize that uh, just a minute longer is, is that you know, sitting in an American university today are future leaders of China um, and how, how that relationship is is, is perceived to like uh, really can change uh, the arc of, of the world. Um, one of the things that has happened, and I really am so pleased that Jim just pointed that out, is, is that with this tension at the national and international level, uh, we're losing sight of the people-to-people exchanges that are extremely important to build a solid foundation on which uh, bridge building can take place now uh, and in the future. We need to find ways to continue an investment in those kinds of exchanges from students to academic to exchanges between mayors and governors and, and, and the like. That can make a huge difference in how the world uh, is going to move forward as the 21st century unfolds. Can I just Coming add a on, quick huge yeah, We need to get a, another. We, oh, yeah, please, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, we need to get a quick break in here, but go ahead. Yeah, so thinking about all, you know, imagine you're a Chinese parent and you've sent your child off to go to high school or college in the United States, and the news that you see are all of these mass shootings or shootings on the street, and there was a shooting in Chicago of a Chinese student, you know, Mm -hmm. and and they're still doing that, and they're still wanting their children to come to America. That's really quite amazing, right? So anyway, I'll just say, you know, if you see a Chinese student um, on the street, maybe you're in Ann Arbor or wherever, you know, give them a smile <laughs> because, yeah. um, you know, it's tough actually being Chinese in the U.S. right now for the wrong for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Yeah. OK, coming up, we're going to continue this really great conversation about China and the United States, the relationships between the two countries. But we'll continue to hear from you as well on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can go to Facebook or Twitter for comments there as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today, I'm Stephen Henderson, and we are talking about China. 
about the relationships between the United States and China with Jim Millward of Georgetown University and Tom Watkins, uh, who's an advisor at the Michigan-China Innovation Center. Uh, We want to hear from you as well about what you think about the relationships between the two countries. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter comments there, and we'll work into the conversation. Let's go next to Fred in Farmington Hills. Fred, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Fred. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to mention that uh, probably the only good thing that Richard Nixon did was to normalize relations with China. Otherwise, I think they'd still be a a renegade uh, regime like North Korea. That said, uh, I think we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot. We kind of sold the farm by uh, purchasing so much merchandise from China. Hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I think we, uh, you know, we needed to exercise I, a little moderation on that score. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Fred, I, I think that's a really great point about uh, what President Nixon decided to do and the, the effects of it over time and of course it was not seen terribly favorably when he when he did it there were a lot of people who were really concerned um uh, jim millward that reminds me of the way we see president biden talking these days about china and something he said recently which was that he would intervene if china invades uh, taiwan of course something he hasn't done in ukraine to stop Russia's Russia's assault uh, on that country. Talk about that kind of rhetoric and how it plays into, I guess, this this welcoming of China into into the sort of international community, which is something I think is still the ambition of many people. But this wariness, I think, of of their own aggressions and what they what they might look like, even in their corner of the world. Yeah, well, the Taiwan issue is probably the most thorny one, most difficult one, because emotions are very high. Um, the, the Chinese Communist Party has used nationalism in a way to fill in after the communist ideology has been sort of diluted over the last 20 years. And so um, people are very, get very heated up over this Um and the status, you know, you know, this began back in the Cold War. There, there was a Republic of China and there was the People's Republic of China. And the U.S. began supporting the non-communist Republic of China, which was also a Leninist dictatorship, by the way. Um, but that was when, you know, when Nixon went, we decided to be ambiguous about it and to say that there was only one China and we're not going to uh, we're not going to say which one it is. But we want the peoples of China to figure it out on their own. Unfortunately, what's happened, well, fortunately, what's happened is that the government in Taiwan is no longer a Leninist dictatorship. It democratized in the 1990s, uh, and they've now become a kind of shining example, really, of of democratic governance um, and a really cool place in East Asia. And so the situation has changed, but the PRC still maintains that Taiwan should be part of China, as it calls it, to be part of the PRC, and, and the U.S.'s position has not has not changed. And arguably, our position now, you know, the reasons for this position that we will support in some unspecified way Taiwan 
Um, the reasons for that are stronger than they were in the 1950s, I think. Um, so it is a difficult problem, but I, I think the solution is, is, has got to be on all sides to tone down the rhetoric, to, to stop the provocative actions. And, and right now they're mainly on the PRC side. They've been flying military planes over the Taiwanese side of the Taiwan mm-hmm. Strait now continuously. So there's a lot of saber rattling going on, and that's not helpful. Um, and you know, it, Biden's comments, one could say, my, I, they, they seem to be, he seems to be trying to add to the ambiguity um, by saying we will support Taiwan, and then his staff step in and say, well, actually, our position hasn't changed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I think it's a little more nuanced than, than, than that. I think, you know, there are policy of strategic ambiguity around uh, the Taiwan issue. As Jim correctly points out, we have the one China policy and on the one hand, and yet we continue to arm and, and, uh, and make sure that, uh, that Taiwan is going to be able to defend itself and, and the like. Uh, look, China is looking to avenge itself for the historical injustices um, that they suffered as, as a weak nation, uh, oftentimes referred to as the century of humiliation from 1849 to when Mao stood in Tiananmen Square mm-hmm. and said the Chinese people have stood up uh, and the Chinese People's Republic of China was founded. Um, this issue, is, as Jim has pointed out, is going to be one of the most thorny um, diplomatic military issues that are going to face all of us and our grandchildren going forward, um, because China, uh, and she has basically said this, by 1949, uh, they want to reverse all the humiliation that they suffered at the West, Japan's uh, hands uh, in, in past centuries. And they're going to work towards that issue. And how we manage this is going to impact us all. Yeah. Okay. Uh it was great to have both of you here for this uh, conversation. Tom Watkins, uh, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. And Jim Millward, uh, it was really wonderful to have your voice in this conversation as well. Thanks uh, for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, uh, that is going to do it for us uh, today. Uh, Stay tuned uh, for On Point, which is next. Come back tomorrow for Detroit Today when we are going to talk about uh, updates on the work of this January 6th commission, the extraordinary testimony that so many of us watched the other night. Uh, Millions and millions of Americans, I think, were really shocked by some of the things that we saw and heard that day. We're going to talk about the potential consequences for politicians and bureaucrats who encouraged citizens to storm the Capitol uh, and try to disrupt the the peaceful transfer of power after the 2020 election. So important show tomorrow, but important coverage here uh, on NPR uh, throughout the day. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.